Now we're going to watch a short video, and then Wilson's going to be up here. You really shouldn't have dug that out of the dumpster. I had to. Also, I had a banana on the way over here. Sorry. And I get why you don't want anyone to know about Duke Silver, and you don't have to worry. Your secret is safe with me. To even it out, I'm going to tell you all of my secrets. Oh, no, that's not necessary. I once forgot to brush my teeth for five weeks. I didn't actually sell my last car. I just forgot where I parked it. I don't know who Al Gore is, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. When they say 2% milk, I don't know what the other 98% is. When I was a baby, my head was so big, scientists did experiments on me. I once threw a beer at a swan, and then it attacked my niece, Rebecca. That'll do, Andrew. Do we have any Parks and Rec fans in the house? Come on. Hey, I'm Wilson. If, you, if we haven't met yet, I don't know why, because I feel like I've probably met everyone in this room. But good to be with you guys here tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about being a people who don't have secrets. I want to talk to you guys tonight about being a transparent people, being people who um, don't keep things in the dark, but expose things into the light. And uh, before we go there, though, I just wanted to do some like, you know, house group celebration is supposed to be fun, interactive. We don't want to be like, hey, you know, house group is all about empowerment. If you know that, we believe that revival will come through everyone getting to lead and everyone getting to put their hand in. And so we don't want to make house group celebration uh, like anti-empowerment. So I wanted to start off with like a little prophetic activation. Who's okay with that? Anybody ready for that? Yeah. All right, cool. So if you were born in a odd month, so like January, um, March, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if your month, if the month you're born is odd, will you just stand up? All right. Now just take some step, take a step out into the aisle way, spread out a little bit. All right. Get some room around yourselves. Now, if you're sitting down, we're going to, you're going to go and prophesy to that person and give them a word of encouragement. So I'm going to pray real quick. And then we're going to go ask those people their names, ask them what month they were born in, and then ask them what God wants to say to them about um, their, the month they were born and et cetera, et cetera. So Jesus, we love you. We're eagerly desiring thee for the prophecy, just like you told us to. And uh, I just release the spirit of prophecy right now in Jesus name. Amen. One, two, three, go. If you're sitting down. All right, good job, everybody. You can grab a seat as soon as you're done. Fun group, willingness to take risks. Let me throw you under the bus. I appreciate that. Who all was a part of um, Nathaniel's Power Evangelism event last weekend? Just raise your hand. Awesome. That was an amazing event. Let's give a hand for Nathaniel. So we had this idea, like, you know... Um, a common thing is 24-hour worship nights, 24-hour prayer, 
to spend 24 hours straight where for that consecutive period of time, people are praying and interceding. You know, there's actually a ministry called International House of Prayer um, in Kansas City. Yeah, what, what? They, well, they're literally always praying, like 24-7, 365. They have a prayer room where at least someone is in that room praying. That's amazing. Prayer is important. But we were like, hey, what if we did 24 consecutive hours of power evangelism? And when I say power evangelism, I mean going out on the street, being in the workplace, talking to your father, mother, whoever it is. You know, evangelism is helping people take their next step in a relationship with Jesus. Relationship it, or um, evangelism isn't like sealing the deal and someone getting born again. Evangelism is you intentionally taking the next step or you intentionally helping someone take their next step towards Jesus. And then when you say power, that means we're going to do it like how Jesus did it. You know, Jesus didn't have any tracks. <laughs> Jesus didn't have a card that said, where would you go today if you died? Do you know you go to heaven? Hey, I'm not against that. I've said that before to people. I've seen things happen from that. Um, and Jesus didn't have the convenience of carrying around like a big flip chart, setting it up in a public square, drawing something on it, and then like, you know, gr- drawing a crowd. No, Jesus took the blind dude and said, see. And then a crowd gathered. And that was Jesus' form of evangelism. So when we say power evangelism, we mean sharing the love of Jesus and then expecting signs and wonders to follow you as you do that. So we had a 24-hour power evangelism event um, where for 24 consecutive hours, Nathaniel was here and he had people sign up in waves and in teams to go out around Coleraine in Cincinnati and uh, just love on people. Just tell people, hey, Jesus loves you and uh, can I pray for you? Is there anything you can use prayer for? It's really that simple. Um, so we had, uh, Jen and my, my wife and I signed up for one of the slots and this is the beauty at 11 o'clock at night. I would never go do, I would just never go out and start praying for people. But because Nathaniel had a prior evangelism event, I came here at 11 PM and, uh, who all knows the skyline right down here on Corian Avenue and done that skyline before who all knows where, uh, the closest gold star is. That's right. Oh man. Just. I don't even know. I don't even notice those places. Like, you guys just, the door is, I'm just kidding. The door is right there. So, my wife and I and John Hancock, that guy back there, we went to the skyline right down the street here, um, right by Reagan. And there's a bar next to it that I've always been interested in checking out or going into. So, Jen and John and I went, and went to that bar, grabbed a beer, and this is for the 24-hour power evangelism event. Went in there and went to the pool tables and sat down at the pool tables and said, hey, Jesus, we're available to you, whatever you want to do. So after about 10 minutes of sitting there and talking, um, we kind of just divided and conquered the room. I was like, I'm going to go to this side, to this pool table and talk to these people. You guys go to that side. So we did that. I got in a conversation with the guy who's actually come to church here before and um, got to like speak to him a little bit. I was sharing with him words of knowledge, sharing with him things I thought that God was saying about him. None of them were right. It was all totally off and wrong. So that was a great demonstration of God's power. But um, then I'm like, okay, this is nothing's happening here. I'm going to go to the other side of the room and uh, join my wife and John. Um, and they're talking to these guys. And I come over and find out that one of these guys, uh, his leg is shorter than the other. So his leg was like three inches shorter and his knee was really messed up. And so right away we just said, dude, Jesus is going to heal that. Do you want to sit down and we'll pray for you and your leg will grow. And he was a really ornery old guy, cussing and not happy at all. But he sat down 
pulled his legs up, and then we just looked him straight in his eyes, and we began to tell him how much worth he had and how much Jesus loved him and that uh, he was God's favorite son and that God was passionately pursuing a relationship with him and that he preferred him and that he'd never done anything to hurt him and he'd never been against him and that he loved him. And we're just, just, we're just speaking truth. We're just... Um, like the basic, the basic part of evangelism is going out and just loving people in truth and bringing up to them, telling them the facts about who God is and his relation, what he wants to do in a relationship with them. So as we did that, you could just tell that he was starting to feel God's presence and love. And then we just said, hey, foot, right leg, not foot, right leg, I command you to grow. Come out right now in Jesus' name. And it was like three inches different. Those are his words. He said, it's three inches shorter. Immediately, the leg just went and just shot out right to the same length the other one. He got up and I was like, go walk around, check it out. He's like, oh my God. Like he had been, like he could feel it actually happen. So he's like walking around and he's still like, for some reason, not happy at all. Even though his leg just grew. I don't know what's going on. Um, his heart was not open, but uh you know, the same thing happened to Jesus sometimes. Jesus came into a town and did miracles and they said, get out of here. They rejected him. So I wasn't going to feel, I wasn't going to be discouraged or uh, rejected by that. And it's a good thing I wasn't. It would have been easy to feel like, well, man, what do I do now? And just been dejected and wanted to leave. But I didn't. I knew that, hey, he's not rejecting me. I'm just the messenger. And um, meanwhile, another one of the guys we had been talking to had came over and he was watching this whole thing happen. So he actually watched this uh, older gentleman's leg grow out. And his eyes at this point are like as big as saucer plates. He was, a, he was a construction worker from Wisconsin, but he had gotten a job um, in Cincinnati. And this poor soul was staying at the Red Carpet Inn. Who all knows where that is? Right across from Skyline? Man, that would be rough. But um, he's, he's, uh, he's just standing there like, I mean, he probably had multiple beers at this point. So that might've been influencing it a little bit, but he was just like blown away. He couldn't, he couldn't process or believe what had just happened. And he leans over to John and he said, Hey, do you think that can, um, like happen for me? Like one of my legs is shorter. We're like, yeah, of course. So sat him down. And at that point we kind of caught on and we called around more people. Hey, come watch Jesus about to heal this guy. So a couple other people gathered around and sure enough, his leg was about an inch shorter same things began to tell Jason how much Jesus loved him, the plan he had for his life, that he had favor on him and that um, he wasn't mad at him, that he loved him and then told the leg to grow and it just came right out and he starts walking around the room so excited. He pulls out his wallet and takes his ID out. He's like, look, I'm from Wisconsin. Like, I don't know these people. Like, this is real. This is real. Da, da, da. Like, I was just watching this on TV, I swear. And um, so then we... So that was just amazing. His, his reaction was priceless. We uh, just shared the gospel with him, found out that he already was a believer, that he knew Jesus, but he had never heard of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about the Holy Spirit. I said, have you ever been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit? And he said, uh, yeah, I mean, I was baptized when I was a kid. They dunked me and, you know, put the water on my head. I was like, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit is a person. Like, he wants to come and fill you right now and give you an experience with him. And, uh, you know, he, he already knew the Holy Spirit. He just wasn't uh, aware of that yet. You know, we can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's actually the third person in the Trinity that does the work in our heart that saves us. Like the Holy Spirit is who brings us to a point of salvation. You know, it's not, it's honestly not the sign and the wonder. It's not our good, 
uh, presentation of the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit wooing that person and then them responding to it. So he had, he had the Holy Spirit. He just didn't even know. So we just prayed for him to fill the Holy Spirit, said, Holy Spirit, come. We release you to just um, baptize our friend right here, the gift of tongues, and just fill him in Jesus' name right there in that bar. Just right there on a Friday night at 1145 with our Bud Lights sitting on the table right there. This who gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? Like, where is the... There's no... Christianity is a 24-7 full contact sport. There is no off time. And there is no place that God doesn't want to show up. There's no time that it's not appropriate to pray for someone to be healed. There's no time that it's not appropriate to see the Holy Spirit come and flood in and fill someone with his presence. Um, So I just want to share that with you guys because I feel a lot more comfortable up here after I share a story or two. But uh, I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to dive into um, the word I feel like God has given me to share with you guys. To be honest with you, I haven't had like an incredible afternoon. I haven't been feeling pumped to get up here. I was begging Jen to preach for me or something because I wasn't really feeling it. But uh, I don't come up here and do this because I feel it. I come up here and share with you guys because God has put something on my heart to share with you. Something that I think is important to house group. I don't want to see house group fade away. Does anyone else? After watching that video, does anyone want to see house group fade away? Well, Just that, just that Friday night fun, the baptisms, that's not actually what will sustain house group. That's not actually what is going to keep house group going. What's going to keep house group going is people of character, people of integrity, people that are transparent, people that don't have secrets. And uh, that's what I want to talk about tonight. So let me just pray real quick. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We give you room here tonight. We really mean it, and we say that you are in charge. <laughs> we lay, I just say right now, I lay down my plans to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's just wait for him for a second. Let's just... You know, he's amazing. Like, let's just give him a, let him enter as he wants. Let's just give him a grant, let him enter at the pace he wants. Let's just be quiet for a second and wait for the Holy Spirit. All right. Amen. Cool. So now that I've zapped all the energy out of you guys and we're all peaceful and ready, um, let's look at, let's look in John chapter one, John one forty three. This is a, this is awesome. Be, uh, this is a cool passage because we see Jesus doing this stuff in a very, in a way that we can really model it after for ourselves. So I'm going to start right here, but in John one forty three, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's awesome. Um, just to paint a little context, a little context for you guys about what's going on here. So, for the past 400 years, roughly, up to this point, it's just been like silent. God has not, spoke, God has not been speaking. He hasn't risen up, rose up risen up. He hasn't risen up any prophets to speak and to bring fresh revelation of what he's doing and to inform people of like what his plan is and where he's on the move. So it's kind of like a dry period. And on the, as well as that, or, um, in addition to that, the Israelites have actually been like in captivity and their culture has been being destroyed by the Roman um, oppressors who's like ruling the land and kind of like pushing the thumb down on them, making them do what they want. And then all of a sudden, on comes to the scene John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is like full of fire and energy. He's totally going against all the religious establishment of the day, lives in the wilderness, eats honey and locusts. I mean, his beard is more gnarly than mine. You guys like that? I haven't shaved in a little while. Um, but he's just like totally going against, going against the uh, culture of the day, the religious culture. So much to the point that people are starting to think like, People are starting to just stop what they're doing and follow John the Baptist. They're pretty much giving their lives up and they're saying, hey, I'm going to follow this and do whatever he does. And even I would imagine that kind of like some whispers started and some rumors were starting to form like, hey, John the Baptist, this might be like the dude. This might be like the guy we've been waiting for. This might be the Messiah. And um, people are starting to like, I think he's starting to gain a little momentum, a little notoriety at this point. So imagine like, he is like the, the um, most popular sought after evangelist of the day. Like everyone is wanting to be around John the Baptist. And then just when his like fame and culmination is about to be complete, what does he do? He says, it's not me. It's this guy. And he points at Jesus says, hey, it's not me, it's Jesus. This is the person you need to focus on. Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to do it all. Like, he's going to bring redemption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He, he totally steps up and says, look, it's Jesus, it's not me. Imagine that, like Bill Johnson or Robbie Dawkins or whoever. Like, he's the person everyone's like, I, I want to be around this guy. I want to learn from him. And then he says, hey, don't pay attention to me. It's this dude over here you got to follow this guy. That's the kind of like the buzz Jesus had. And you know, in that day, they didn't know Jesus was the son of God. Like that wasn't like common knowledge, you know? So there was kind of, had to be like a little bit of a buzz and attraction that built up around him. So Jesus is walking along and he says, he picks you out of the crowd. He just points right at you right now. He points at you and he says, you, Philip, follow me. Come after, I want you to follow me. Come with me. Like, whoa, imagine that. Jesus just picking you out and saying, you right there, Caleb, follow me. That's pretty, like, that would be a, uh, 
ego boost, that'd be, I mean, that'd be amazing, right? Like Jesus picks you like and says, you follow me. Well, what's the first thing Philip does? He, he's, I mean, obviously he's like, yeah, of course. Then he goes, okay, I'm going to go tell my friend. I'm going to go tell my best friend, Nathaniel. And you know, I'm reading into this a little bit, but we got to like make the scripture alive. So we can't just read it line by line and then act like there is no conversation going on. He goes against Nathaniel. He says, dude, Nathaniel, I found him. I found the dude. I found the Messiah. It's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Come with me. You got to meet this guy. Please come with me. And how does Nathaniel respond? Yeah, I've heard of him. I've heard of this Jesus guy, but Nathaniel, but Philip, he's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. You know, they're all backwater hicks there. They're all lame. They don't, dude, it's Nazareth. Let's be honest. Like, come on, it's Nazareth. And um, that, that was kind of the stigma. There was a bad stigma around Nazareth in that time. But I'd imagine that uh, Philip, you know, he persuades him like, come on, you just got to at least meet him. Come and check him out, please. So Nathaniel's basically just doing this as a courtesy to his friend. He says, okay, I'll come with you. I'll come and meet Jesus. He's like, oh, I'll come and meet Jesus. Isn't that hilarious? Just think about that. How ironic, somebody didn't even, like, it just makes me crack up to think how amazing and famous Jesus is now. There was a time he wasn't known like that on earth. But we're alive when we know who Jesus is. You could have been born before Jesus and you wouldn't have got to champion him. How amazing is that, that you're alive today and you get to know who Jesus is. We're born in a time where we have the revelation of the son of God and we get to carry that out and share that with other people. What's keeping us? Fear? <laughs> like, dude, come on, it's Jesus. What, like, we're alive at this time in, in, in history so that we can share Jesus with people. Other people weren't alive right now. Dude, like, we got to take advantage of it. And, um, yeah. So, Nathaniel's walking up, like, okay, I'm going to meet Jesus. I'm coming. And then I, this is how I like to picture the scene happening. Nathaniel's walking out to Jesus and maybe Jesus is like right there at this like front row of chairs and Nathaniel's coming to him and uh, Jesus just stops and he goes, look, it's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Look, it's somebody who has nothing hidden. No, someone with no guile, someone who what you see is what you get. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, hey, Nathaniel, you think you know who I am? But I know who you are. I know who you are. I see you. I see who you are and what you're about. I know who you are. I think, that, I think this is like a model Jesus is setting for us. He, he always wants to tell people that he knows them. He knows who they are. That, you know, everyone in the world is just longing to be known by God. Inside of everyone, there's a hole and there's a longing to know that God knows them. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's starting off saying, I know who you are. I know you. You're an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What happens next? Um, Nathaniel's kind of getting rocked. And he says, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What's he doing here? He's saying, I know where you've been. I know where you come from. I know your past. I know your history. I know your mistakes. And I know your successes. And I'm calling you. He's letting Nathaniel know, hey, I know who you are. I think that's a big part of how prophecy and word knowledge is supposed to work. We're supposed to introduce people to let them know that Jesus knows who they are and where they've been. And then they have no reason to think he won't accept them. That's like the ultimate cop-out, right? Oh, if you only knew where I'd been, if you only knew the things I've done, 
No, Jesus says, I saw you then. I was there. I was with you in that time. I mean, so like, it seems like um, he was probably just under the fig tree, right? Like, we don't, we don't know. The context doesn't tell us when this fig tree happened. I'm guessing that uh, he was just under a fig tree. That, that seems what it's like, probably. But let's just imagine for a second. Imagine that the last memory Nathaniel ever had of his father before his father ran off was his father saying goodbye to him under a fig tree. Like, I mean, we, we don't know that's not what happened here. And I'm not trying to make, like, theology off of this. I'm just saying, like, play with the significance of what a word of knowledge can do to someone's life. How simple. Under a, I saw you under a fig tree. Hey, um, I, I just got this sense that you just got a new car. Oh, I'm not going to share that with my waitress. Like, what will that do? That's stupid. Well, maybe your waitress, like, has been trying to get a new car for years, and they just prayed, and they got it today. And, you know, who knows the significance? A couple weeks ago, Rick, or this week, Rick was at a, um, I'm going to steal your story right now, Rick. I don't know where you are. But um, earlier this week, Rick was at a, uh, well, okay, this is really funny. He took a cue from Jen and John and I and went to a bar to have his quiet time. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't have, like, there's not, there's not a place that Jesus wouldn't go. And there's not a place that we can't go spend time with Jesus, right? So he goes and he's hanging out in the bar. I don't know. I assume he probably wasn't drinking. But, um, and his waitress comes up and, you know, he's having a conversation with her. And he starts feeling prompted, like God wants to speak to her, like God wants to minister to her. So he uh, asks God, like, hey, what do you want to say about this person? What do you want to do here? And he just got the sense that she'd had a miscarriage. And that she'd had, had a miscarriage in the past. And so, um, and this is the whole thing. I know where you've been. Okay. I know where you've been. And so Rick, very tactfully, when she comes back, says, Hey, do you like have any kids? Do you have a family? Um, yeah, I just love to hear more about you and just expresses love interest. You know, like that's loving somebody that, that might feel a bit of uncomfortable to ask someone a question like that, but love isn't always like, we have a wrong perception sometimes of what love is. Love isn't always comfortable, okay? Like if our only picture of love is what we see on TV, then we have like such a whacked out, distorted picture of love. Sometimes love is really uncomfortable. Sometimes love is hu- hugging a stranger. Sometimes love is asking someone a question that might feel a bit like off. And uh, she says, yeah, I actually have, was it two little girls? She said, yeah, I have two little girls, da, 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 And Rick just says, hey, can I just pray for you? Um, I just want to bless your family and bless your kids. She says, yeah, of course, thanks. So at this point, um, he starts praying for and just blessing her family. And then after he gets done praying, he says, um, this, is, this might sound kind of weird, but I just felt like, I just had the sense that you've had a miscarriage before. Is that something you've gone through? Is that something you've experienced? And she said, I mean, like, I, don't, I haven't heard all the details of the story, but you can just imagine her reaction. What? Like, yeah, I, I have. And he just gets to share with her, hey, Jesus showed that to me because he wants to heal that place in your heart. Like that wound, that thing that happened, he, he revealed that to me because he loves you so much that he wants to heal that place in your heart right now. Jesus knows where you've been. And he wants people to know that. He wants them to know, I know where you've been. I saw you under the fig tree. What's he do next in this uh, situation? Jesus says, you're blown away by that stuff. You're blown away by me knowing who you are and where you've been. Well, guess what? I'm going to tell you what you're going to see now. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He says, not only do I know who you are and where you've been, but here's where you're going. 
This is where, and dude, that's like, that's what people are crying out for. They want to know what is my purpose in life? Where am I going? Why am I here? And that's what Jesus did. He said, this is where you're going. By the way, do you notice that Jesus is at the center of that? He didn't tell Nathaniel, um, here's where you're going. You're going to do this and that. No, he said, you're going to see this stuff about me. Here's your future, me. Your future is centered on Jesus. That's a word for everyone in this room. Your future isn't centered on where am I going to be in 10 years? What am I going to do? How many kids? uh, What's my retirement going to look like? Your future is set on Jesus. That's the focus point of where you're going in life. Not yourself. Where, 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 where's Jesus going to be in that? Where's Jesus going to be in my future? That's what we look for. That's what we focus on. So bringing that all back around, he says to him, the first thing, I just can't, I mean, I love all that, but I just can't get over that word of knowledge. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Imagine Jesus walking into this room right now. Imagine him just opening that back door. You see the curtain fly open. He walks over. He walks across the stage and he begins to point at the room. He just begins to look at all of you guys. He's pointing across the room. He's making eye contact with each of you. And he says, look, house group, a people in whom there is no deceit. Look, it's house group, people I can trust. People who don't have anything hidden. People in whom there's no guile. People who what you see is what you get. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine what that would be like. We can be like that, you guys. That's a, that's a culture that house group can cultivate. A people in whom there is no deceit. A people in whom are not held back by any shame. We don't have anything hidden. And I'm not talking about telling every single person every single thing you've done and everywhere you've been and every sin you've committed. I'm saying we need to have people in our life that know everything about us. Because anything you have hidden is where the enemy's coming. Anything that you have in the dark, that is the enemy's plan of attack. Think about your, if you're wondering like, where's the devil gonna get me next? Think about what you have hidden. Think about what you've never told anybody. Think about what you've kept in the dark. That's where he's coming. We can't afford to have anything hidden, my friends. I can't afford to have anything hidden in my life. Luke, my dad, my mom, and Jen, there is not a thing about me that they don't know. There is nothing, and I'm, I can say this with a clean conscience and utter confidence, there is no place that I've fallen short that I haven't revealed to them. Because I know that as soon as I start hiding that, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it's not going to really matter if I've confessed it to them or not because I've had an affair or I've robbed a bank or I've been, become addicted to a drug or something. Like, that's what we see happening to people. They keep stuff hidden. I mean, so who all has heard of, like, these famous, amazing revivalists and awesome, like, preachers that lead tons of people to the Lord, raise the dead, but then you find out years later that they've been having, like, uh, they've been soliciting prostitutes, or they've been in, like, a homosexual relationship, or they have this secret alcohol addiction, or they run off with their secretary, and we think, how can that happen? How can, how can people get there, like, when God's hand is so clear on their life? They had deceit, my friends. They had things hidden. They had things they weren't showing others. Dana Cochran, she's one of the uh, pastors at Vineyard Cincinnati. Um, She was there from the beginning of the vineyard. Like, she is an OG vineyard gal, original gangster. And uh, 
she came and spoke to a group of our leaders a couple, was that last fall? I think it was last fall. And um, I was just reading this morning some of the things she said to us, and they really stuck out to me. I just want to share them with you. She was, she, we were kind of just asking her, man, I keep messing my iPad up. Okay. We were asking her questions and she was sharing her heart with us. We were saying, hey, what are things like that looking back on your ministry, you would want to share with us, you want us to know? Here are some of the things she said to me that I wrote down that just really get me. I mean, like, if you know me, you know that I love to pray for the sick. Like, I was playing cornhole with one of my friends, Alex, a couple months ago, and we didn't really know each other well, so we were kind of getting to know each other, and we're tossing cornhole bags in his backyard. And um, he's like, so Wilson, like, what do you like to do? What, what are your hobbies? Like, and I wish that I could have said something like fishing or hunting. But dude, my hobbies are evangelism and the Bible and worshiping and like raising up leaders. Like that, honestly, he was like, dude, shut up. Like, tell me for real. I was like, bro, I'm ashamed, but I'm not ashamed. But honestly, like I need to get a life because Jesus is my life. Like that's all I like to do. And, um, so you know how much I love that stuff. You know how much I love that. I love to see people healed and delivered and saved, but dude, that's not what's going to sustain house group. More healings, more salvations, more baptisms. That's good. And we want that, but that's not, that's not what will keep house group going 50 years from now. That's not what will keep house group going until Jesus comes back. Listen to what Dana said. She said, character is more important than you can imagine. Without character, we can't sustain ministry. Without character, we cannot sustain ministry. She said, the gifts are good, but you need to always seek the giver. She said, don't get caught up with the gifts. Continually seek the giver. Another thing she said that really struck me was, anything we want to happen in public we need to be pushing into in private. Any public ministry you want to do needs to start in private. It starts with Jesus alone, you and him. And this, is, this was the home run that she said that is kind of like where I want to go tonight more. She said, this is really simple, but I just love it. Be ruthless with sin in your life. Be ruthless with sin in your life. That sin and falling short, messing up, man, that's not something we're super focused on in house group because we know that as soon as you get born again, you're new and that sin isn't your norm anymore. But we can't like just rely on that I'm a new creation and never actually experience renewal of the mind. That's how we live. That's how we begin to live a lifestyle that's not controlled by sin is when our mind gets renewed. Bill Johnson said that the only only way a believer can sin is a lie they believe about God or a lie they believe about themselves. And I really believe that to be true. Areas I fall short is because I'm not thinking. There's something in my thinking that's not right. You know, our spirit is perfectly born again and renewed, but our mind needs to be renewed. It says in Romans 12 too, do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the renewing of your mind. It means that we need to constantly be reevaluating and figuring out where is my mind not lining up with God's. I can't, another Bill Johnson quote, I can't afford to have any thought in here that's not up there. I can't afford to have any thoughts in here that he doesn't have himself. So my, um, my journey with confession, I'm just going to share with you guys 
where this has come from me, um, how, how I have figured out, I think I've kind of figured out the hard way a little bit about confession. I've, I've dove into confession because it's like my last resort. What am I going to do? Crap. I better confess this. I'd encourage you not to go that way. Like start to develop a discipline in your life of finding trusted people. And for right now I'm going to speak a lot from my heart and then I'm going to kind of back up a little bit, give you, guys, give you guys some practical guidelines on how I would recommend and encourage confession looking in your life. But just bear with me as you hear kind of the uh, conviction behind this. You know, I'm not very good at writing messages. The best thing I can do is come up here and just preach right from my stomach and just speak to you guys all the things that God's doing in me. So don't worry, like everything I'm telling you, I have tried. <laughs> I have gone through. I have, I have experienced. And hopefully... Um, and hopefully some of us can learn from the things that I've messed up on. You can get, get a head up and you can start this practice of confession right now. So I'm just going to tell you guys a quick story. This is the most, one of the most significant times in my life the confession ever played out. Growing up, I was, you know, like in a pastor's family and um, I was really inundated with the gospel and with going to church and being around the church environment all the time. And so that like really um, pushed me in the right direction for a long time. But then it started to get a little overwhelming for me. I started to feel like, man, am I even choosing this? I can't ever remember a time that I got to choose it for myself. I feel like I've always just kind of been put in this position. And that kind of led to some weird rebellion in my heart towards God and towards like um, listening to my parents' advice. And so my senior year of high school, I got in a romantic relationship with a girl, first real serious relationship I'd ever been in. And um, pretty quickly, I gave something away to her that was very valuable. I gave my virginity away to her. I slept with her. And that was something that I had always been kind of coached and encouraged by my parents to keep as a gift, to be able to give to somebody. You know, that's what your virginity is. It's actually a gift that you have to give to someone else. And it's the most valuable gift you can ever give, something to protect. And... Um, so after, after um, a period of time of being together and sleeping together, she ended up getting pregnant. And she ended up um, getting pregnant. So right at this time, I am totally depressed. I'm going to UC. I'm not enjoying it at all. I'm really not following Jesus. But um, I'm like, man, I want some excitement. I want some adventure. I'm going to go down to Jacksonville, Florida. I'm going to go down and do a DTS, a discipleship training school with YWAM. Something my sister had done. It's like a mission trip. It's a mission school. And um, so I'm, I'm accepted to this place, the YWAM Jacksonville, ready to go. And then I find this out, that my girlfriend's you know, pregnant. And amidst this, people from the church are sending me money, supporting me to go. Like, wow, that, I felt like a big, big scumbag. And uh, pretty quickly, we uh, it came to the conclusion that we were in an agreement about what, to, what the next step was to take with her being pregnant. I thought, okay, let's um, tell my parents. We'll figure out how to give it up for adoption or maybe some way we can keep it. But uh, we can kind of um, figure that out. And see, for me, I had always kept my parents like totally in the loop. I had never kept secrets from them. I had always been like, I mean, I was just an open book to them. I was like always letting them in on everything, even to the point where it was just like kind of pathetic on my part. Like one time Luke and Luke and I in high school, we uh, decided for some reason that it'd be cool to steal a lot of gum. So we would go to like Speedway 
on a, like after wrestling practice and literally go in there and just like pack 50 packs of gum into our hoodies and like run out with it and then sell it for 50 cents at school. And, um, so as we're doing this, Luke's also sneaking out of the house and like, uh, taking his parents' car in the middle of the night and picking me up and then we're going and just being 16 year olds. And, um, Luke is bragging about this and on AOL Instant Messenger and chatting with somebody like, kind of like, hey, I did this, I did that, I'm cool, da, da, da. And then the computer crashes. And so he thought, okay, I guess like my, uh, the window that was up is just gone now. You know, like it's, it'll just be gone. He's like, okay. it didn't crash, it ran out of battery. And so the, the computer like died and he's like, okay. I mean, we didn't know a ton about computers then. Like we were just learning like what www dot meant. So we didn't even know like, what, what was going on with the computers. He thought, okay, that window's gone forever now. And uh, the next afternoon, his mom picks us up from wrestling practice. And usually I would just go right to Luke's house after wrestling practice and we'd play video games or hang out or whatever until uh, dinner was ready. And uh, then I'd go home and eat dinner. Well, Luke's mom just goes right past Luke's house and drops me off right at home. I'm kind of like, what's the deal? Uh, like, we're not going to hang out. And she's like, no, Luke, Luke asked her like, mom, Will's coming over. And she said, no, not tonight. Uh, not this, not this evening. We, your dad and I have to talk to you. And I just thought, okay, Luke did something stupid. <laughs> we, we must be in trouble. Like if Luke's in trouble, I was probably there and involved somehow. So whatever. So I go home and I kind of like forgot about all that happening, spend the rest of the evening with my parents. It's like nine o'clock at night. I'm watching TV in the basement and my dad comes down and says, Hey, Wilson, we come upstairs, your mom and I need to talk to you. And lo and behold, the AOL chat thing doesn't just disappear when the computer dies, okay? It stays there when the computer comes back on. So Luke's dad sits down to turn the computer on and starts reading, ha ha, my parents are so stupid, they don't know, blah, 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 we stole all this stuff, da, 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 like, and sees all that. And so they call my, they, you know, interrogate Luke and luckily, well, I don't know if luckily is the right word. There's nothing incriminating in uh, those, those messages about me directly. But if you knew Luke and I, you knew that we did like everything together and there's no chance that I wasn't at least present. So all they could get out of Luke was that I was there, but Luke swore up and down that I had never stolen. I'd never been a part of it. Great friend. Didn't, didn't sell me out. Didn't, didn't narc on me, which I totally would have narked on him instantly. And, uh, <laughs> and so... My parents call me upstairs and they have this information. They say, Jerry and Teresa found uh, a window on the computer that showing that Luke had, um, you know, stolen and all this stuff. And he says that Wilson wasn't part of it, but uh, we don't know. We just want to let you know what, what's going on. Luke, Luke says though that Wilson didn't do anything. And they say all that to me and they say, Wilson, what do you have to say? I did it. Oh my gosh. I stole. I'm so sorry. I just run up to my room and get like three shoe boxes full of gum and DVDs and, uh, like confess them. So sorry, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, um, walked that whole thing out. By the way, I'm, I'm going to tag back into my other story, but I want to make this point really quick. I'm going to tag back into the whole girlfriend story in just a second. But in Proverbs 28, 13, it says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's pretty interesting that as long as you keep things in the dark, you won't prosper. That's what this is saying, that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Things we keep hidden keep us from moving forward. 
Things you have hidden keep you from moving forward. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is honestly a good example. I confessed it to my parents and I literally did obtain mercy. Luke's punishment was much more severe than mine. Like Luke was grounded for, I can't remember how long, tons of trouble. I confessed it. I came forward. My parents had more grace and mercy on me because they saw that like, hey, he's obviously trying to be open with this here. And then even to take that a step further, um, Luke's dad and my dad and I and Luke went out to all the stores we had stolen from, went to the general managers of the stores, said, hey, we did this. We stole this gum um, and whatever else we stole. Please forgive us. We'd like to pay you back for it. And we obtained mercy from them. None of them called the cops. They could have. Like, that was stupid of us, honestly. I think that was kind of a bad idea that we did that. (laughs) But uh, because they could have easily just been like, no, I don't forgive you. I'm calling the police right now. You just confessed to a crime. But anyway, no, they, I obtained mercy. They forgave me. They let me pay for it. I didn't get any criminal charges on my record or anything. Um, but to, to the converse of that flip side of that, about three years later, Luke and I picked up the bad habit of shoplifting again. And we got caught this time by the police showed up at Luke's house and we did not obtain mercy. We obtained no mercy. They took Luke away in a cop car and I got on, I got put on house arrest. When you confess, you open yourself up to the opportunity of obtaining mercy. Hopefully, like you guys don't have anything to confess about stealing and with the law, but even other areas of your life, things you're keeping hidden, as soon as you confess that to someone, God's mercy is released in that situation. And the repercussions that would naturally have come if you had never confessed are reduced and lessened because God's a God of mercy. He sees that. He sees our willingness. So, um, okay, back to the story. I've never kept anything from my parents. I've never, I've never uh, like kept them in the dark and what's going on in my life. But in this situation, I opted to. And um, after many weeks of fighting back and forth, my girlfriend and I, I'm not going to say her name just to kind of protect her um, privacy and everything. And uh, after a couple months, or after multiple weeks of fighting, became clear that there was the only option in her mind was to end the pregnancy and to get abortion. And I would like to say to you that I tooth and nail resisted that. And that I said, no way, no how I'll never, ever be okay with that. But I, um, I wasn't following Jesus at that point. I wasn't in a actual relationship with him. I wasn't knowing God, you know, that's what it, that's what it means when it says those who know God will not continue in sin. It's saying people who are knowing him, not like know of him, but people who know him, who spend time with him, who relate to him, who are in, in an intimate relationship with him, won't continue in sin. And um, I was definitely not knowing God at that point in my life. And I said, okay, like, yeah, get an abortion. Like, I, if that's what you want to do, I guess that's what, what we'll do. And um, yeah, that sucked, obviously. That's not the point of my story. So I'm not gonna get bogged down there. That was big... Uh, horrible thing that happened in my life. But fast forward about um, three months later, or yeah, I think that was in November. So in, yeah, fast forward about five months later, I haven't really told anybody about this. The only people I've confided in about it is Luke and one of my other really close friends uh, who's kind of like a big brother to me. And then also I told one of my big brothers, but I didn't really told anybody. And I'm in YOM 
down in Jacksonville, Florida, in my discipleship training school, learning about Jesus, um, learning about evangelism and God's grace and cross-cultural missions. And then on my fourth week, this whole time I've not been following Jesus. This whole time I've still been totally engaging in a like pseudo kind of like sexual relationship with my girlfriend, even though I'm down here to discipleship training school in YWAM. This is in 2010. And um, the first, the fourth week of the school, this guy came in and started preaching on the father heart of God. And he started by sharing his testimony with us and um, the things he had walked through before he was saved. And um, some of the things he'd been through was he'd been on a house arrest for shoplifting and he dated girls who had abortion, abortions. So like, boom, that just nailed me, rocked me. I couldn't believe it. it. Gave me something to relate to, gave me something to actually bite into about God for the first time. And so I, uh, that, that's really the day that I like feel like I got, saved. Like I really started following Jesus. So that, that's when I made the choice. And that's when I really started feeling like a new creation, February, 2010. But still I had this thing, this incredibly big life event that w- really shaped a lot of who I was and how I saw the world in between my parents and I, in between our relationship. And it was getting to the point where it was like, only a certain level of transparency I felt like giving to them because I had this kind of like dirty secret that I wasn't, you know, opening myself up to share with them. Um, so fast forward to March, this is January or this is February, 2010. So fast forward to Easter weekend. So that'd be the end of March. Right. And I come home from, uh, for my break before I go to India for two months and it's actually Easter weekend. And I say, Hey mom, dad, can we please like go sit down and talk? Um, I want to I talk to you guys about something. And before I did this, the guy that was discipling me there, I had confessed it to him what had happened. And he really encouraged me, man. Well, he prayed for me and uh, loved on me. But he said, dude, like you should really tell your parents about this. This isn't something you should keep between them. Like this is uh, keeping you from taking the next, this is keeping you from further intimacy with your parents, like by not sharing this with them. So I sat them down and, uh, I mean, not exactly sat them down, but I said, Hey, can we talk? And just shared with them the whole series of events. My girlfriend and I entered her name, slept together. And, uh, after a series of months, she got pregnant and, uh, then she had an abortion. And obviously at that point I'm like just wailing and crying. And I didn't expect, I, I, I started to hear someone else crying in the room, which of course is my mom. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I knew my mom would cry at this point. I need to go comfort her, be a good son. But I looked up and it wasn't my mom crying. It's actually my dad crying. And so that, you know, opened the floodgates for me. But immediately both of them ran over to me, embraced me and told me they forgave me. They said, we love you so much. And the healing that happened in my heart at that moment could not have happened without that moment. Like I get that at the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And I totally understand that we are totally forgiven from what he did and not from our confession. But guys, there's something that happens in our hearts when we confess. There's healing that happens to us when we become people of no deceit, when we lower our waterline, when we say, hey, I want to be authentic. I want to reveal to you what's gone on in my life. And you know what I did next? I went to each of my brothers and sisters who were married at the time and confessed it to each one of them. I said, hey, I don't want anything in between us. This is what's happened. Forgive me for keeping it from you, please. And I'm so sorry. Each one of them responded the same way, cried with me, loved me, hugged me, and told me they forgave me. And without that, like just imagine who I would be up here today 
if I hadn't shared that yet. You don't even need to bother imagining me because I wouldn't be up here. <laughs> no way, dude. Like I would have, when we keep things in the dark, more darkness is going to come. That's where the darkness grows. Look in Mark 7. Um, Jesus kind of explains his dynamic in Mark 7. <clears throat> Mark 7, verse 14. He says, or it says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You know, whenever Jesus says, hear me, all of you, and understand, it's, or like, those who have ears to hear, let him hear, that kind of thing. I think what he's getting at is, hey, I'm about to say something that makes sense in the natural, but there's also a spiritual parallel to it. So get ready, like brace yourself for that. Like, don't just hear the natural thing. Hear what I'm trying to actually say to you, like, in a spiritual sense. And he continues and he says, And when he had entered the house and left the parable, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Boom, right there. Natural implication, what he's saying. That's the natural meaning of the parable. Now he dives into the spiritual, metaphorical, deeper uh, meaning. And he says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, it's not a matter of our surroundings. It's not a a matter of what's going on around us. It's a matter of our inner world. It's a matter of what we have inside that's dark, that we're not exposing, that we're not getting out of us. Until you confess, that stuff is staying inside of you. I really believe that confession is like a prophetic act of saying, hey, this, this was killed to the cross, but I'm officially getting it out of me right now. I'm saying, hey, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm getting this outside of me. I can't afford to have something in the dark. That's what I think Jesus is getting at, is that it's not about your surroundings. You can't blame your surroundings. It's a heart issue. You need heart and mind healing. You can't have things in the dark. All right, I'm going to, the next place I want to go to kind of start to wrap this up is uh, Hebrews 9.14. I think this is important to balance everything I'm saying tonight. It'd be easy to start to kind of get somewhere weird with this and think that like, you know, there is some parts of the church that just got confession totally wrong. Like, uh, confession doesn't forgive your sins. And you can get weird with confession. That's not, that's not what happens. Jesus died for your sins and he paid for all of them. And matter of fact, is he forgave them all at the cross. It's our choice now, when we get born again, to receive them. You know, kind of talking from the hip here, but it's not being forgiven that gets you into the kingdom of God. It's becoming, an, it's becoming a new creation that gets you into the kingdom of God. That's what's really is happening at salvation when you're um, becoming a new person, entering the kingdom. It's not just merely being forgiven. So Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. That's cool to note that it was through the Holy Spirit that Jesus was able to offer himself on the cross. That's what it's saying. Through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. That's how he was able to get there. Let's all take a hint. 
when there's something hard we have to do, we don't rely on ourselves. We ask the eternal spirit of God to empower us to do it. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see here that it's the blood of Jesus alone that purifies our conscience. It's not our confession. That's one thing I don't want anyone to walk away here with tonight is to think that to get free from shame, to get free from condemnation, I need to confess. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I think lots of times that kind of helps the process speed along, but shame and condemnation were taken care of at the cross, not by the things that we do. It was Jesus's act that frees us from that. What happens when we confess is we align ourselves with what Jesus did at the cross. When we don't confess, we're not living and walking in our new creation identity. We're actually being ruled by the thing that we're keeping in secret, the thing that we have done that we don't want people to know about that we have hidden. That's what's happening when we're keeping something out um, in the dark and not revealing it. Um, I'm going to look at, I just want to go through two passages, give you guys a couple of practical how-tos, and then we're going to worship because that's the whole point of why we're here tonight. So um, in Psalm 32, this is a powerful passage by David talking about forgiveness. He says, blessed is the one, this is Psalms 32, one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Hey, no deceit. Remember, that's a theme, man. That's a, when you open your eyes to this whole idea of confession and being vulnerable, you'll start to see there's a theme in the Bible of not keeping things hidden. It's not just like a couple token verses Wilson pulled out and he wants everyone to do. No, there's something to this thing of not keeping things hidden, my friend, guys. Um, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. What's this saying? When we have unconfessed things in us that we haven't um, gotten out, we start to feel and we start to perceive as if God is against us. God's never against us, but that's how we start to look at things. When we keep things hidden, we start to believe that it's separating us from God. When nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing. But when we keep things in the dark, when we keep them hidden, that's, that's what the dynamic that starts to build up that we start to experience and feel. Because he's, a, he's personal, man. Like he wants to know you. He's not just like up there floating in the sky, knowing everything. No, he wants a personal one-on-one, moment-by-moment relationship with you. He's personal. And that's why I can feel like, feel, remember I'm saying feel, not, it's not the reality, like we're separated from him. Because we want a dynamic relationship with him that's give and take where we're both going at it. Um, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. I love that um, this is a kind of a missing part of, I think, confession a lot of times is like, why do we do it? What's the purpose? Like, why are we confessing? I think a big reason is because we need prayer. We need someone to pray for us and help us like heal from that area where we've fallen short, where we've messed up, where we've lacked. That's where the prayer aspect comes in and um, releases us from a lot of the uh, tendencies that fall. Like when we keep things in the dark, it, it's like a track record we're starting. 
When you, de- when you decide that you can beat this on your own, you don't need someone else's help, you're t- well, first of all, it's pride because we need help, we need community. But you're taking another step towards doing that thing again and probably doing it in a greater measure. That's been my experience personally. For years, I struggled with like um, lust and acting on lust. And finally, I got sick of it. And Luke and I, we started, we made like a pact with each other. This was two years ago. Every time we struggled and stumbled with lust and pornography and all that kind of stuff, immediately we came to each other and said, hey, I struggled in this way. Pray for me. Help me figure out why I did it. And let's like beat this thing in our life. And for two years now, we haven't, well, a year, a year and nine months to be totally exact, honest. Not that I'm counting. Um, <laughs> We haven't struggled with it. Like, it's not like a, it's not like a problem for us. I'm not, I'm not just saying it's like, I'm gritting my teeth still every day. No, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm free from that because I constantly walked out a lifestyle of confession in that area. So, um, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Let's flip the James. I think this is where we get the kind of actual instruction for what, what's happening there. What, what's supposed to happen. James 5, uh, verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I just want to pause right there and, and make the note that sometimes physical sickness can be tied to sin. I don't think like 99 times out of 100, that's the case. And I think, I mean, lots of times we can just blame the devil for sickness because it's, that's what he's ministering. But from my experience, I'm just telling you from my experience, I have seen that through um, sin, people have gotten, there's been um, physical sickness has come along with it. I'd like to sugarcoat that more and like put it in a nicer package for us or something. And this isn't a thing to like incite fear at all, but that's just what I've seen. Right up here, one Sunday morning, uh, there was a couple, it was our first time at church. Celia and I were praying for them. And the woman had terrible rheumatoid arthritis. She had like pain all throughout her body. And we were praying for them, commanding the pain to leave, like, you know, for her to be asking God to heal her and stuff and no breakthrough, no change. And then I can't remember if it was Celia or I, one of us just got the sense that she had some like area that she was not, um, that she was un- unforgiveness, like, I hate that that's a kind of a proper noun in charismatic Christianity. Do you have any unforgiveness? I don't think it's always a big, I don't think it always like dictates the situation. But in this situation, we found out that she had some serious unforgiveness going on with her spouse. She has some serious resentment, bitterness, borderline kind of like hatred going on with her spouse. Her spouse, we find out, had been in jail for like the past five years and had just gotten out. And so she felt really abandoned by him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we said, hey, we really believe that God wants you to forgive him right now. Like, we think that's what God wants you to do in this situation. And we just said, hey, honestly, like, unforgiveness is, it's a sin. Like, it's not, it's not okay. You're holding something against your husband that Jesus isn't holding against him. Like, how stupid is that when you just think, when you just put it that way, it's kind of like, duh. Like, I don't have the right to hold something against somebody that Jesus isn't. I need to forgive them. So she forgave him and instantly all the pain left. And she was totally healed right away in that moment, as soon as she forgave him. So, I mean, there can be moments where that's part of it, where confessing your sin, she confessed her sin, we prayed for her, boom, she was healed. But verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person was, a, wait, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is such a key part 
of um, confession is getting prayer and actually walking through what led up to the series of events that led to you stumbling in that way. And that's what I want to hit really quick is a couple of practical how-tos so that we don't all go out of this room confessing our sin to the Speedway gas clerk. Um, what does this look like for me? There's been times in um, my relationship with Jen being married where we've got like in a fight, we've been mad at each other. Jamie or Anthony know this because they live right below us. But um, there's been times we've gotten in fights. And to be honest with you guys, I've used language that was not honoring in any way, shape, or form to her. I've, I've sinned in my language. And you know what I do after that? Right away, I mean, I repent to God because that's the first person who I sinned against. I repent to her, but then and ask her to forgive me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But immediately after that, I call Luke or my, I call Luke and my dad and say, hey, this is what happened. I said X, Y, and Z. I tell them exactly what happened. There is no vagueness. There is no nebulousness to it. I tell them as many details as I can remember because anything I hide is going to come back to get me. That's just really what I think, man. Like I've been thinking so, I've gotten kind of freaked out as I've heard stories about pastors who fall into secret sins. I'm like, what's going on there, man? Like, how did that happen? I don't want to be like that. So you know what I'm doing? I'm being ruthless with sin in my life. I'm being ruthless with it. I am aiming to be a person who is of no deceit, who you see, what you see is what you get. There's nothing hidden here. There's nothing in my life that there's people who don't know about it. So practically, who? You heard me mention Luke and my dad. If you have a spouse, that's a no-brainer. You shouldn't have anything hidden from them. Like, I'm not even going to talk about that. That's just obvious to me. Um, But it's important that you have like a peer relational figure that you're confessing things to, I think. I think that we kind of want to make this circle one to three people. So I'm actually getting into now practically how to confess. Band, you're going to be coming in just a little bit, probably five minutes or less. But um, also, confession, I didn't, I didn't define that for you guys. Confession is just agreeing with God that what you did was sin. That's the best definition I've ever heard. It's from a guy named Tim Davidson. He says, confession is agreeing with God that what you did was sin. So you have one to three people in your life. I would encourage you not to have more than three after three people know something, it's likely that the whole room is going to know it the next time you walk into the room. Honestly, like one to three is enough. Okay. One of them should be a peer, should be somebody that you can level with, that gets you, that knows you, that you can look eye to eye with, that you're growing with, like, you know, a Barnabas, somebody like Paul and Barnabas walked it out together for a while. And then another, I really think should be a kind of like authority figure. Like it's not, it's just a different dynamic. When I confess something to Luke, it's a little easier than when I confess it to my dad. Okay. Like it's, it's kind of easy and natural for me to go to Luke. Hey man, I messed up here. Like I'm definitely not proud of it, but, um, I got to level with you. And like, it's kind of easy to level with Luke. But when I come to my dad, that actually takes a little grit in my teeth because I have a healthy fear of my dad. You know, I have a healthy respect and love and, um, like admiration. And I don't want to let him down. You need someone in your life like that, that you're confessing to. You need someone who has authority in your life, who you have a healthy fear and respect for. Okay. So a peer, someone you have, someone who has some kind of authority, this person should be on your inner circle. The the depth of relationship you have with them should be a two-way street. Okay. It shouldn't be like they're not as close to you as you're close to them because you don't need to let those people, like 
the people you need to let in that deep on your life are the people that are equally invested in you as you're invested in them. Like Luke and I, I know that like, number one, dude, like we're tight. <laughs> like there's not another, he, I'm the first person he's going to turn to. He's the first person I'm going to turn to. That's the kind of person you want to pick out to confess to Okay. Um, now next, what? The what of what you should confess. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, read this really fast, says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. If you spare details, if you hide stuff, then you can't get an open rebuke because they don't know exactly what happened. You need someone who's willing to tell you, this and that was also wrong. You didn't necessarily confess that, but I heard you say this and that stuff was wrong too. And better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Hidden love, I mean, like, of course they love you even when you're not telling them everything, but they can't give you that open correction, that open response and feedback unless you're sparing no detail, unless you're really being brutally honest. Then it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We just got to be so open, you guys. Like, when it comes to those one or two, one or three inner circle people, we just let it all out. Like, we aren't trying to hide it. We're not trying to use, like, like, um, more tame uh, language to describe it. We're saying like, I said these words, I did these actions, X, Y, and Z. Like that's really how I think confession should look. And it's not to like bring up shame or to make you run back through it, but it's so there's real accountability being built. Real, account to be, real accountability being built, <laughs> okay? Um, this leads to humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look for things you can do that make you feel really humble, okay? And you're gonna get grace there. But where you're intentionally being proud, which is when you're not willing to share things, there's opposition that comes. Um, I said this earlier, I alluded to this, that until you confess it, it stays inside of you. When you confess it, it's actually getting out. Um, I'd encourage you early on in this just to be really sensitive to your conscience. Confess a ton of stuff. Ask for feedback and they'll say, hey, you didn't need to confess to me that you had a little bit of road rage. Like, I think that's not going to be a huge problem in your life. But thanks for telling me. The only way you're going to find out that it's not going to be a big deal is when you get that feedback and they say, hey, it's okay. Like, you don't need to confess. It's better to lean into your conscience than to lean away from it, you know? Because your conscience is the Holy Spirit. Um, Ask for feedback um, and help from whoever you're confessing to. I tell my dad and Luke, what should I do differently? I always say that. How can I change this behavior? Then I listen, even if I think I know what they're going to say. Look for lies personally go through what are the lies you're believing? I believed what, what was kind of the source of that me using um, like unhealthy, unkind language to Jen was I, I was literally believing this, that I'm allowed to express myself according to what I'm feeling. I was thinking that. that, that sounded kind of reasonable. I'm allowed to express myself verbally how I'm thinking. And only when I use these words, does it actually express how I'm feeling? That was a lie, you know, like that's not okay. You're not allowed to do that because we always have joy. We always have peace. We always have patience. We need to access those feelings, not the current experience. So that's what I mean by lies. Look for lies, reject those lies, figure out the truth, declare the truth, ask them, hey, I don't know exactly what the lie I'm believing here is. Will you help me work through this? Last point. So worship team, you can come out. I'm going to pray in a second. Um, Is to be at peace. Okay. Don't let confession be the thing that gets you free from shame and condemnation. Be free from condemnation and shame because of what Jesus did. Otherwise, until you confess, you're going to be experiencing shame and guilt and all that stuff. Don't, don't let that, that, that's how I was for a long time. It was only until I confessed 
and I revealed what I had done that I felt like I was forgiven. No, man, like when you confess, you're getting to step kind of back into your identity, but that's not what actually gets you forgiven, you know? So you got to be at peace and know that, hey, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, there's not like a little asterisk there that says, there is no condemnation for those who confess. You know, like there is no condemnation. That's a fact. That's a reality. Um, that's how it works. So you can be at peace. I'm going to pray for you guys. And hopefully the worship band comes out while I'm praying. And then we're going to, okay, cool. And then we're going to worship. Seven o'clock. Jesus, we love you so much. We welcome your presence to be here right now. Come inhabit our praise. Come and heal us and change us as we worship you. We're desperate to be more like you. We're desperate to see more of your face. We're hungry to know more how much you love us. We have a lot of knowledge about your love. We want more experience. I'm just saying personally, I want more experience of your love, Lord. I would love that. I would, that sign me up for more experience of your love, Jesus. Sign me up for more experience of who you are and what it means that you love me. In Jesus' name, amen.